A reading from Genesis. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Romans. Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said to the twelve apostles, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher, and the slave like the master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. 
For nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, and even the hairs of your head are counted. So do not be afraid. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The Gospel of the Lord. When I was young, I learned the stories like the one about Abraham and Ishmael and Sarah and Hagar on a flannel board. Everybody seemed a lot happier on that board <laughs> than in my imagination, you know. And, uh, and I learned those stories and even memorized some of them and recited them and got candy if I told you the right people who did the right things when called on. And the thing I learned about those stories was that there was one way to read them. That these stories were God prescribing how we were supposed to act. That these stories were telling us do like the people in the book. That's what God wants. Now, at a minimum, what that would mean is that if you ever find yourself with a concubine from Egypt who has a child that's older than your wife's child, feel free to dispel them when he turns 12 or 13. Check that box. Um, I now know what to do in that emergency situation. little more insidious, though, is outside of the particulars. Hearing the story as prescribing God sending somebody out from the household. And something we don't really recognize because of where we live in Texas, after all, you know, a skin of water is great here, you can fill it up somewhere else, but in the place Abraham's living, it's a desert, and a skin of water is enough for about one person for half a day, and there's two in the story. A loaf of bread is enough for one person a day, and there's two in the story. The boy is at least 13, and the mother is at least, well, 25. I mean, do, you sort of do the math. Abraham sends this woman out in the middle of the desert to die. To die. The problem when we read the Bible prescriptively is that we might think God is asking us to act like that. I think the question is, how could that be possible? 
It's really fortunate that when I went to seminary, somebody put this language, uh, gave me this language that was helpful for me to know that the Bible, just like us, often has conversations, doesn't always give answers, and that another way to read the Bible is not as prescribing how we are to behave, but quite frankly, often describing how we already behave. Describing. You want a description about how we act in war and the atrocities commit, read the book of Judges. We do that. Not sure there's a lot of other value in the book of Judges. Anybody read it? (laughs) Do not act like the Judges. Let me just tell you that up front. There's no way that God's economy functions like that. But it is very fair to think that the Bible, especially the stories that make the hairs on our necks stand up, might be doing that on purpose so that we are called to look at the ways we're behaving and change them instead of perpetuating them in God's name. That's what I think Jesus is telling us today with this bit about bringing a sword on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, you know. I came to turn a father against a child and a mother-in-law against a daughter-in-law as if that doesn't happen anyway naturally, you know. Let's just be honest. Um, I cannot imagine Jesus saying that we know we're following the gospel if we make our parents hate us. So we should actively go look and do it. My parents often thought that's what I was doing. (laughs) I'm pretty sure my kids are doing that to me most of the time. Um, And and of course, the danger is if we hear Jesus prescribing it, then not only is he giving us license to be professional agitators, but we're storing up merit in our heavenly treasure boxes when we do it. Can you imagine? God is actually calling us to introduce enmity and discord in our families and do it in Jesus' name. Or, or, might Jesus be describing something that is very real, not just in our families, in our extended families, but even in our friendships? Funny, isn't it, how uh, beyond politics, I mean, I think religion is actually one of those bits that can divide families against each other even more than politics can. And it happens without us even trying. It happens because we hear different calls independently. And I'm just going to let you know, I was intensely grateful that my brother decided to tell my mom that he was becoming Orthodox Jewish the weekend of my ordination to the diaconate because it ran severe interference. (laughs) I had become a liberal Protestant who wore dresses, um, but that was better than being an Orthodox Jew in the evangelical mind of my parents, you know. Um, I didn't do it to bother her. I I did it because I thought that's what God wanted me to do. Even if we're not talking about Catholics with Protestants or Catholics with Jewish people, these sorts of divisive elements come up within people of our own faith and own persuasion. There are many people I see eye to eye with, even when I hear the news on TV, we have similar reactions. But when it comes to how we treat the person with the brown sign on the corner who says, I want food, or, or how it is we go about serving people in Jesus' name that we've identified in need, I'll tell you, I almost find myself divided, often. Not because I want to, 
Because I think Jesus is describing something that we just do. We do it as families. And, and the thing that I learned as a family member, there was, it was sort of bizarre. One of these things we do in our family, right, is we, 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 we beat up on the odd person. You know, there's that uncle or that cousin or whatever, and we all know they belong on Jerry Springer um, over and over again. And, and we might even name that. You can't say it in a formal setting, but you can, you can informally name it. Sometimes you do it by praying for them. And... Um, I'm glad somebody else knows what that's like. <laughs> oh, please pray for my uncle Stephen. He's a loser. Uh, <laughs> I'm not gossiping. Uh, <laughs> the thing about my family, though, is even though we did that, there really was only one way out of the family. This is the interesting bit. There was only one way out. And that was, you weren't born into it, you came in by marriage, and that marriage ended. So, so when you divorce the natural-born family person you might find yourself out of the family. Now that included sitting through Thanksgiving meals with people who we knew were scumbags. I, and, I, and I don't even mean that playfully. I mean, I'm related to real scumbags. <laughs> and often our prayer request is that cousin so-and-so wouldn't come to Thanksgiving dinner. Because if they did, they'd get a seat. We knew they would. wonder if Jesus isn't talking about families to contrast the way we often view friends. See, we often have this viewpoint, I think, that friends are like the family we'd pick if it were up to us. Right? That's often true. Of course, you know that we can unpick our friends and we can be unpicked by our friends. That luxury does not exist with our family. But I wonder if that isn't part of the point. I wonder if Jesus isn't asking us to entertain that this dichotomy with which we live, that I'm related to these people that I have to put up with, but I don't have to put up with anybody I'm not related to. I wonder if Jesus isn't actually challenging us to think that that's a false dichotomy. I wonder if Jesus isn't inviting us instead to consider to which family we belong. Do we belong to human families or do we belong to God's family? If we belong to human families, put Ishmael out of the house. After all, he laughed at Isaac or played with him or something. The text isn't really even clear. I mean, do you want your older child playing with your younger child? Get rid of that nuisance real fast. But if Ishmael is God's child... How dare we put one of God's children out of God's homes? I wonder if that isn't what the story is asking us to consider. And it makes me wonder when Jesus says, don't be afraid of the one that can kill the body, but the one that can kill the body and soul in hell, if Jesus isn't talking about God. (laughs) Because you know, at the time of Jesus, hell did not exist like we think about it. Nobody thought about hell as a place full of fire and red-tailed horns, Uh, pointy-sticked people that stab you for eternity and make you suffer. At the time of Jesus, hell, this is a Greek word, Gehenna, referred to a precise geological point outside the city of Jerusalem. It was the absolute minimum where two valleys met. 
The reason hell was there is because all of the blood that came from the temple rolled downhill to the valley. The reason hell was there is because that's where people went to burn their trash. It was the dump. And the biggest reason hell was there is that for more than 2,000 years ahead of Jesus, people had gone out to worship gods named Chemosh and Milcom, and they had taken their firstborn children and burned them alive in that spot called Gehenna. And why would they do that? They thought that if they got, gave God their most valuable thing, their firstborn son at that time, right? That's the most valuable thing. The son is the heir and the landholder and the namesake. They thought if they burned up, gave absolutely the most valuable thing they had, that God would bless them. That's how they would show that they really trusted. The Jewish people said, that's not a blessing, that's hell. Burning up your firstborn child, your future, your legacy, your heritage, burning up a life so that you can appease God is hell. That's where the word comes from. It happens in that place, and hell is the namesake of trash and wasting our future and breaking the families God has created for us to have. Wonder if Jesus isn't saying, don't be afraid that God is going to send you there. Be afraid that you have already gone there yourself. Did Abraham do things much different with his oldest son? Sending him out in the wilderness with not enough to survive on. Isn't that like offering your firstborn son? Now, if you're a careful reader, you might be thinking, well, didn't God tell Abraham to do it? Didn't God say, Abraham, you go ahead, this is going to be okay, I'll bless the boy. Maybe. You know, we pray this phrase every time we get together in church. Lead us not into temptation. It's a puzzling phrase, isn't it? Because if you're like me, you're not comfortable with the idea that God tempts you to do the wrong thing. We have another guy who tempts us to do that, right? He's the red guy with the spade tail and the fork. You know, one of those people from the hells we imagine. I'm not comfortable with the idea that God is walking down the wrong road and asking me to come alongside just to see if I'll do it. Are you? But we pray that prayer every week. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now I know this isn't a great depth of insight, but to be honest... The best I can do with that phrase is the best I've already done with the scripture before us. Maybe it isn't that God is tempting us. Maybe it's the gods we believe in that are tempting us and not the God that created us. Maybe when we find ourselves led down the wrong road and we say we're walking it in God's name, we're really just walking it in our own name and putting gods on it. 
maybe instead of God walking down the wrong road and encouraging us, the way it really works is God's walking down the right road. We just don't want to go there because we'd have to put up with family members we don't want at the table. Wouldn't it be convenient if you didn't have to do that anymore? And not only you didn't have to do it, but when you intentionally turned them away, you were worshiping God. Wouldn't that be a great religion? We'd all be very good at it, don't you think? And then we could come to church every week and worship ourselves. And I think that's what Paul is saying today. You know, this is really helpful for me to think about the prayer book, because some of you know this. You've, you've, you've read this definition in the prayer book. The definition of sin is separation from God. Separation from God. And Paul is writing to a group of people in Romans a very sophisticated philosophical argument. He's saying, you know, guys and gals, You were living in this separation from God with the way you were behaving and the way you were thinking about each other. It wasn't that God wasn't with you. It's that you were not living in accordance with the way God wanted you to live. You were not entering into God's imagination for your life. You were living in sin. But friends, but friends, the amazing thing about God is that no matter how hard you tried to get away from God, God followed you. No matter how big the ledge you were jumping off to get away from God, God was diving for you. And the bigger the ledge, the bigger the dive God made. And some of you have got this all wrong. You're thinking, hey, jump off a bigger ledge because God will make a bigger jump. The more ledges we dive off, the more grace we get. And no, no, friends. No, friends. We cannot go on living a separation from God. We died to that idea that we could be separate from God. We don't go on sinning to get more grace. We stop living separate from God so we can have joy in our lives, which was the purpose of grace to begin with. I wonder if Paul isn't asking us to consider whether we're sending people out of God's family to go in the desert and be away from us. And if we are, I'm pretty sure Paul is saying, stop it. God will catch them. God catches Ishmael in the story, makes a great nation out of him. It's not just about Ishmael, it's also about us. It's also about Abraham sending out his son to die. Which in my brain has to be the opposite of worshiping God. Has to be the opposite. Surely God is asking us to look at people at our Thanksgiving table and in our newspaper and at churches that are across the street and people are on TV we're afraid of. Surely God is asking us to look at those people and say, I guess you're in God's family too. I guess God wants us to be related, related even if I don't want to be. So I'd better make room for you at God's Thanksgiving table even if you choose not to come. All that sounds real easy. I, mean, I don't know that it sounds easy. Actually, I think it's pretty difficult. 
But I want to let you know these surprises come, you know, and I know this is already long, so I'll try to make it short. I'm not going to succeed. There was a group of us who went to the Beacon on Thursday. The Beacon is this really fantastic place downtown that is a day center for chronically homeless men and women. So during the day, what they get is a fresh meal that's, that's, that's cooked. I mean, like, you chop the carrots as a volunteer, and you cook them, and you serve them. And, and people get to take showers, and they get their laundry done so that they can live with dignity and care, and they can have services like finding affordable housing or, or job services or medical services, and they do that most days of the week. So there was a group of eight of us, and we, we, we went in, and we were these volunteers chopping, cooking carrots. I got this job being the sugar packet Nazi, which uh, goes like this. While they're waiting for lunch, they can have unlimited coffee, but they can't have unlimited sugar packets because they might take too many, I, I guess. So the way it goes is somebody comes up to, to me wearing my hairnet and my uh, apron and my gloves and says, I'd like seven sugars and five um, cream packets for my four-ounce cup of coffee. And, and I said, you can have three, but I want seven. You can have three, which kind would you like? And, and then they said, well, I'll just come back. Oh, okay, as long as you wait in line, you can come back, you know. So I did that for about two and a half hours. And people in general were pretty nice, you know. They would say things like, <sighs> and, and other things I couldn't hear when I limited the three and one, you know. But in general, they're pretty good rule followers because if you don't follow the rules at the beacon, the security will take you out. I mean, it's just, they, don't, they don't put up with that. You know, things can get violent real fast. So... Um, after that, I got to serve lunch. And there was a lady who was so good in the sugar pack line, she wanted each time uh, two sugars and one cream. So I thought she was really kind of walking the road of moderation, you know. And, and I served her about four times, and she came up, and everything was great. And then it got time to give her the carrots. And, and, and she wanted this tray. Well, everyone has trays, you know. Um, and there's like a couple different squares and a big oval and a big square, you know, for your main dish and your side dishes. And I guess if you had a milk and a piece of bread, everything gets its own spot on the tray, you know. And, and, and she could have had two vegetables. She could have had spinach or she could have had carrots, but she wanted two scoops of carrots. So wearing my hairnet and my gloves, I made sure she got two scoops of carrots. But they both, both scoops went in the same square. <laughs> they both went in the same square. And she said, I wanted two scoops of carrots. <laughs> Well, I gave them to you. They're both there in that square. But I wanted them in two squares. <laughs> well, I already gave you the carrots. I was a little bit nicer, mind you. <laughs> I already gave you the carrots. You got two scoops, promise. They're just in the same square. I mean, there was, you ever have a conversation with somebody that's really like a, a monologue that you're having at each other? It was one of those, right, where there was no input I was going to give aside from another scoop of carrots that was going to make this go away but I'm a rule follower. <laughs> so I said, you know, you've had the two scoops of carrots. Thanks, hope you enjoy your lunch. <laughs> and this nice sugar packet lady, gosh, she was so nice in the sugar line. <laughs> she, 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 she said, you're just a piece of trash. Well, see, some of you did the right thing. You just laughed because that's silly, right? It's silly to be called a piece of trash over carrots. <laughs> it is as silly, isn't it? Yeah, I did not laugh. I got really mad. <laughs> I mean, really mad. 
I got so mad that I said, supervisor, we got a problem. This is what we're supposed to do when there's a problem with clients. Because there's a rule that you can't use inflammatory language. Because you imagine how quickly that would go up, you know? Whew. Supervisor, we got a problem. Um, she called me She said she called me trash. <laughs> it was not funny. I just want you to know. I mean, it was not funny. I mean, I was going to throw the tray in the trash or something myself. I said, I'll show you. I, I was so mad at this lady. And the supervisor, of course, very calmly was like, Mary, what's the problem? She said, I want two scoops of carrots. And she just gave her another scoop of carrots and said, you know, Mary's got schizophrenia. And, and Mary went on the way, you know, and she might have called me trash again. And <laughs> on the way out, you know, took a parting blow. And... Um, you know, it's one of those moments where here I am talking to you about expanding God's family and keeping people in. But you know, I'll tell you, in that moment, I was ready to put her out. <laughs> I was. I was ready to put her out of the beacon. I was ready to put the tray away. I was ready to say good riddance to bad rubbish. And to be honest with you, I probably will never see Mary again. rest of my life, probably never will. And isn't that the way we often live? <laughs> We refuse to see those people again in the eyes of our minds and our hearts because we've already put them out of God's family. For me, the, the miracle of the trip was not how I helped people. The miracle of the trip was how Mary stood in front of me and I had this opportunity to say, God, I wish you weren't, but you are my sister in God's family. The truth is that opportunity is not gone for me and it's not gone for us. And I am positive that at least this week, that's what God is begging us to do. And we said, we first came in, we sang this song, we'll go to a better place. I think we read these stories so we don't have to wait to get there. So we can go there right now. Right now, with one another, as the family that God imagines and intends. Please join me as we pray our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.